Our scripture reading this morning is the uh, text from which Rob will speak from, and we're going to do it responsively. So I'll uh, read the first verses, and then uh, my assistants here will help us with the, uh, you all will be reading the rest. Okay. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They had no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance they threaten opposition. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore people turn to them and drink waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. If I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. And then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on a slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was blunt Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. May God add a blessing on the reading of his word. Please share with us. Well, good morning. Well, it's uh, good to be back here. Um, I love having the opportunity to go around our district and be able to uh, share what God lays on, uh, on my heart to be able to just speak to our churches. But I do feel like I need to address something. My uh, questionable sports um, affiliations, uh, yes, I, I do root for a team that is not popular in this area, I grew up in Ohio, so I am an Ohio State fan. But as I was told, I should seek forgiveness for that, but I don't feel I should. Um, I feel like I'm in good company. Our district superintendent, I'm sure you know Thomas George, he is with me on this one. So uh, if you have complaints about that, you can funnel them up to him. So. But uh, I I do feel, though, I am raising my son according to how you guys would see is the right way. He is a Michigan fan. Uh, I had nothing to do with that. It's just, you know, growing up in Michigan, he feels he should root for Michigan. So uh, so I say, you know, it's where I grew up. It's what I knew, what I know now, what I still root for. But uh, that aside... What's that? Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that is very important. Even with all the differences we have, we can still love each other. So 
We are looking at Psalm 73 today. If you come to know me well, you will know that I love the book of Psalms. And I believe I told you that last time. And so when I have an opportunity to preach, I love to preach from the book of Psalms. And this psalm in particular, Psalm 73, for some reason I have I've loved this psalm since I was younger. Uh, I don't know exactly why, but I have some maybe inclinations of why I like it. Uh, you know, as you read through this psalm, it's a psalm of Asaph. Now, Asaph, he was a temple worker. He worked in the temple. He kind of led worship, and so he was, he was a Levite, and, and he worked there leading the people in worship. And when you read some of his psalms, so Psalm 50 is one of his, and then starting here in Psalm 73 and the following psalms, the, you know, they're written by Asaph. And they are very beautiful psalms as you read them, very uh, picturesque, very uh, high view of God. It's just, it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, psalm writer that Asaph was. And I really like this one because he really gets down to earth with his feelings and where he is at. And I, I love that about him because as he's writing this psalm, he's just, you can see the turmoil that he's going through, just those high and low emotions and almost anger and bitterness as well. And so he really just kind of pours out his heart. And so today I want to look at this kind of suffering that he went through and just his pouring out of his heart and his emotions of what God was speaking through him and that he brought to the temple as a form of worship, this psalm. And so with that, a quick outline. So when you look at uh, Psalm 73, I like to say it starts out with a hypothesis. It says, truly God is good to Israel. Excuse me to those who are pure in heart. So he starts out with a hypothesis. And then he's going to test this hypothesis throughout the psalm. You know, is God truly good to Israel, to all those who are pure in heart? Is he? Well, let's find out. So he goes through all these questions that he is trying to answer. So he has this promise from God that he is good to Israel, to all who are pure in heart. And then he goes through questioning that promise. And to sometimes he feels like that promise is being undermined by what he sees in the world. And then there is a type of resolution that occurs. So kind of the turning point in the psalm is in verse 17, there's kind of this turning point or resolution where he kind of, he's enlightened He kind of comes to a conclusion about his hypothesis, and he explains a little bit. And then he ends once again with that hypothesis now confirmed, truly, God is good. And so that's kind of, in a nutshell, the outline of the psalm here. And so as we look at the psalm, and, you know, a lot of times when I'm going through, I use the English Standard Version, so if the verses sound just slightly different from your translation— that might be wise. So he starts out, he says, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So when he says truly, it's, it's, very, it's a very emphatic word here. Truly, surely, indeed. Or you could say, of course. All these things. He's saying God is good to Israel. You should know this. Truly, God is good to Israel. It's sort of like a, uh, a proverb that he's opening his psalm with. Truly, God is good to Israel, to all who are pure in heart. Almost like a creedal statement. This is something that, you know, we can build our faith upon. God is good. We can build upon that. It's a creedal statement. This statement, he, he gets tested and reaffirmed throughout this passage. Truly, God is good to those who are pure in heart. But as it's tested, it does go through quite a transition and the psalmist's mind and heart as he's kind of struggling with this term. He says, God is good to the pure in heart. He's saying to those that are totally committed to God. He's saying, if you are truly and totally committed to God, if you are pure in heart, then you will see that God is good. 
So this kind of brings about a reflection point in my own life, just right off the bat. So when there are times in my life that I don't feel God's goodness, they may be times that I need to have some self-reflection in my life. If I truly do not see that God is good in my own life, if I'm struggling with that, maybe there's something going on in my heart, in my mind, in my life that I need to reflect upon. Okay, God, I'm really struggling to see your goodness in this situation. I am having a very hard time with that. Why? Search me, know me, tell me what is going on that I cannot see your goodness. So at any time in your life, if you're kind of struggling with this hypothesis that Asaph is throwing out here, truly God is good, if you're having a hard time seeing that, it may be time for some self-reflection to kind of go deep to see, okay, God, what do you have to tell me? And so as he continues in this psalm, he says, But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. So he has this hypothesis about God being truly good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And he was struggling with seeing that this is true. And he says he, he, his whole life was almost completely undermined. And, and you see later in the psalm how he talks about, God, I became like a brute beast to you. I was awful. I was angry. I was mad at you. I was a brute beast. I just wanted to oh, just tear things apart because I was so angry. I did not see that you were truly good. I almost lost my faith over this. He had this crisis of faith. And it says that, you know, all these things happened. His happiness slipped away. He wasn't content with who he was or what he was in God. He was really struggling here. And what was he struggling with? He tells us in the next verse, he says, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> that that sin that I think can eat away at a lot of us, envy. He looked around at what was going on in the world, and he's just like, man, here I am, a Levite, a priest in the temple, leading worship, and look at these people out here who don't care about God, and they're prospering. They're not struggling. They're doing great. And I know for a fact they are wicked. I see what they do. Their heart isn't towards God, and yet they're prospering. It says God's good to those who are pure in heart. They're not pure in heart. Why are they prospering like they are? So his reason for unhappiness was that the wicked had peace. They had peace. They had prosperity. And so he judged by what he saw around him. He had an unfocused eye. It was wandering, looking all around. His gaze was not fixed upon God. And because of that, he looked around at what was around him. He saw the wicked. He saw all the things that were going on, and envy grew within him because he took his gaze away from God. He said, man, look at that person. Look at that nice car. I could never afford that. What am I doing? You know, look at, they have a beautiful house. They're not sick. They're, they have perfect health. And I see that they go out drinking all the time and they do risky behavior and all this. And look at, they're perfectly healthy. And me, I, I one time don't wear my mask in a group setting and I come down with a horrible cold. You know, we look at all these different things and we're like, oh, we look around and we get envious at people. This is what's happening here. And, it's, and we look at it, and Asaph here, he's becoming overwhelmed by self-pity. He doesn't have it as good as the wicked. He's like, man, woe is me because I'm suffering and they're prospering. They're doing so good and I'm doing so poor. Woe is me. He's having this pity party that is causing him to lose his faith because he's looking around at what's going on around himself. So what is it that he sees? What is he observing? He says in verse 4 through 12, some of the things that he observes. He says, 
for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. At that time, to be fat was a good thing. You know, we look at it now and, and we, you know, have this picture of what is healthy. But at the time of Asaph, if you were fat, that means you had plenty of food, you had plenty of riches, you were doing well. So when we look at that, let's keep that in mind. So just whatever you picture a good body type, healthy body type, imagine that's what he's saying. But for Asaph in his time, fat and sleek was the picture of health. Says they are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongue struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. So this is what he's observing as he's looking around. He's looking at the wicked and he sees they have physical well-being. They are healthy. They're not getting sick. They're not suffering. They're well-fed. They're not struggling paycheck to paycheck like I am. They're not looking at like, man, the rise in the uh, price of groceries. You know, if the one thing I've heard so many times in the last year, the price of eggs, the price of milk, the price of cheese. Yes, everything's getting more expensive. And he's looking around. He's doing the same thing. He's like, look at that. They're getting fat. They're getting rich. What is going on here? And I think a lot of us, we still look at health and physical fitness as the believer's birthright. That if I am a believer and I'm doing what God says, I should be healthy and I should be well off. God never promised us that. He never did. Yes, we can be rich in the Spirit, but He didn't promise us physical riches here on this earth. He didn't promise us that we would be physically healthy here on this earth. You know, as a chaplain in the hospital, I, I come across this all the time. Someone's sick and they say, Chaplain, what did I do? Why is God punishing me like this? Because I'm sick and I'm not healthy. Why? Why is it? God told me that, or God tells us that we should be healthy and rich. I'm like, where? Where does he tell us that? So we, we still think a lot of times that physical fitness and riches is the believer's birthright, but it's not. And he's looking at the wicked around him, and he sees that the normal struggles of mankind don't really apply to the people that he's talking about in these verses. It almost looks like their troubles are non-existent. He's looking at them, he's like, they seem to have no troubles whatsoever. Why is that? Why are they prospering so? And I think a lot of times when we look at evil in the world, it causes us to question God's goodness. That's a very common thing in any philosophy course that you might take or when you decide to talk about theology with a friend, you talk about, okay, evil in the world and God's goodness. How do we reconcile those two things? I'm not going to do that here in this sermon. It's beyond our scope for today. But yes, it is hard to see evil in the world and see the prosperity of the wicked and see the goodness of God at the same time. It should cause us to question. It's a healthy thing. We should struggle with that some. And hopefully God can bring enlightenment to our eyes and minds. And so as he continues, he, he says... They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. He says their words matter to a great number of people. He's saying, look at these evil people out there, the wicked. It's like they're, they're out talking and speaking and people actually listen to them. Like people are following them. How is this? How is that the case? Now I have to say as a minister, a chaplain, that uh, when I see 
other people that like they're just kind of leading people astray, so to speak, or kind of uh, people that I see that don't have the right advice and everyone's like, oh yeah, definitely, I'm going to follow them. You're like, no, 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 don't follow them. Don't listen to them. And maybe not the, to, the exploit, to the point of someone being wicked or evil, but, uh, and this is stuff I struggle with in my own family, and I should say extended family. So I went off to seminary, to school, got all the training in theology and all this, and uh, so for some reason, my own arrogance and pride, I feel like I should be some sort of spiritual giant in my own family, my extended family. But that's not the case. And so sometimes I, I, I think, okay, well, I have this training. I've, I've studied the scripture. I have all this. And yet I'll go to a family gathering and I'll have a family member be like, well, you know, well, I read in scripture this. And so therefore, you know, the Spirit's telling me this, but you're saying that the scripture actually means that. Well, I'll go with what, you know, the Spirit's telling me. It's like, okay, that's good. But the scripture from my study this, this, this. I'm like, oh, oh well. And so I feel like I'm kind of pushed aside. And that's my own arrogance. Like I said, something I struggle with, I ask forgiveness for. I even have to go to family members and ask them for forgiveness for. But I look at that, it's like, okay, why don't they listen to me? I'm someone who's been trained. I've gone, studied theology. I've studied the scriptures. Now, Asaph, that's not necessarily what he's saying, but as a minister, I can kind of understand where he's at. He's like, okay, these other people in Israel that I see that are wicked, the people are following them, but they're not listening to me. I serve in the temple. I worship God. We're there leading worship, but they don't listen to me, but they're listening to these other people. I, I can relate. Maybe you can relate in your own realm, your own family, or maybe in your own job or whatever it might be. Just kind of, why aren't people listening to me? What is going on here? And once again, it kind of becomes that sin of envy creeping in. He says, Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault to them. The people listen to them. And so being that temple worker, it really is bothering him that people are listening to those other people out there and not, not listening to him, not following him. And he says, and they say, how can God know? Is there, is there knowledge in the Most High? These people, they think that they know more than God. And he looks at it and he says, God's not receiving the respect that he deserves. And it's really bothering him that the wicked are like that. He says, they scoff at God. They are leading God's people astray. And yet, the wicked are at ease. They're increasing in their riches. They're prospering. They're in positions of power. They have all this influence. And he doesn't like it. And so he's really struggling here. So when we look at Asaph's struggle here, that sin of envy as, he's, as his eye is wandering, looking at all that is around him, where does our envy lie? When we aren't fixing our gaze upon God, where does our gaze go to? Where are we looking? What are we envying? Do we look at our neighbor who maybe has that perfect lawn that we can't quite get? <laughs> or are we looking at maybe a coworker who just everything just seems to fall in place for them? You know, they get the promotion, we don't. Or maybe it's a family member. I'm one of six kids. I've got siblings that are doing way better than I am. I look at them, it's like, how did they have such an easy time? And I feel like I've been struggling this whole time. It's like, how is that? That does tend to happen. I, that, that's kind of where my eye goes sometimes. Like, man, how did, how did they get it is that easy? Now, I say easy, but that's how I perceive it. I'm sure they had struggles as well. But when I look, I look at, other people, it's like, why, are, why do they have it so easy and I'm struggling so much? Where does our envy lie when we're not focusing upon God? And so as the psalmist continues, he says, In all vain have I kept my heart clean 
and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist here, what he's questioning now is, is it worth it? I am really struggling to stay pure in heart. Is it even worth it? Is this Christian walk that I am doing, is it worth it? When I see how everyone else lives, it seems like the way that they're living is the way to go. They're prospering. They're doing well. They seem happy. And I'm trying to stay pure in heart, and I'm struggling, and I'm, I suffer with depression, or I'm getting sick all the time, and I, all these different things. Is it worth it? He's saying being pure in heart seems futile. Why am I struggling so much to stay pure in heart? It seems like a futile endeavor. Righteousness doesn't seem worth it. I may as well do what the wicked do, then I will prosper. I'm being pure in heart and I'm suffering. This is what he sees when he's looking around and he's really questioning. He said at the very beginning how he almost stumbled, how his feet almost slipped. This is where he is at that point of almost stumbling, almost slipping and losing his faith here. He's at that very precipice. He's at the cliff looking over. He's saying, what is it all for? Is it worth it? And as we look at in our own lives, sometimes we look at our own faith and we might question, is it worth it? Or we might have a different question when we look at our faith. We might say, what do I get out of it? My faith, what am I getting out of it? What blessing am I getting for being faithful? We might look at it that way. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't bless us. Yes, he does. And a lot of us, you know, God has blessed us wonderfully. But sometimes we might look at the Christian walk as just, okay, God, bless us, bless us, bless us, bless us. And why isn't he? Do we see righteousness or pure in heart following after God's ways as a means of self-interest for ourselves? Or righteousness being pure in heart for God's sake alone? We should follow the Christian path regardless of blessing. We should try and strive for that purity in heart for God's sake alone, not for our own self-interest. That's hard. That's tough. The psalmist eventually comes to that conclusion, but we'll get there. I like verse 15, you know, in the whole scheme of the psalm. He says, If I had said, I will speak thus... I would have betrayed the generation of your children. The psalmist here, he was going through this struggle. He was struggling with this hypothesis, God is truly good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. He was struggling with it as his eye was wandering, looking at the prosperity of the wicked. And as he did so, he did not want to share that with anyone else. He kept it inside. He felt like, okay, if I spoke to the children of Israel about what I'm struggling with as a worship leader, if I said I really struggle with the aspect that God is truly good, I would have betrayed them. I would have caused them harm, so I just kept it inside. I struggled with it alone. And as a, as a minister, as a chaplain, that really speaks to me about things that happen in my life that I don't want to share or talk to people about because, well, one, what if they think of me differently? Or what if I cause them to have a crisis of faith because of some of the things I'm questioning? So maybe I'll just struggle alone because I don't want to drag anyone else down or I don't want to bother anyone or I don't want to change anyone's perspective of me. 
He did not want his doubts affecting the people, so instead they ate him up inside. So as a family of God, it's really difficult for us to grow as a family of God if we keep our struggles internal and don't share them with our brothers and sisters. To have people come alongside us to say, you know what? I'm glad you shared that because I struggle with that same question or with that same issue. This is how God delivered me from that. Or maybe we can work together sharing our difficulties and we can see how God can deliver us both through this difficult time. I shared with you last time I was here my struggles with my finances and how I almost destroyed my marriage over that. If I keep that to myself and don't share that with other people because I'm afraid of what people might think about me, I did that for a long time. I didn't want anyone to know. Now it's like, good if you know. If you're struggling, maybe I can help you, talk to you about how God has helped me. How the shame that I had just drove me down and I did not want to speak about it. And I really struggled spiritually for a very long time because of it. But now it's something that I can speak openly about. Your brothers and sisters in Christ could really benefit from us sharing our struggles with each other. To be able to come alongside each other to help us through those struggles. Reflect on that. Reflect on what are the things that I'm keeping hidden that's just eating me up, tearing me up inside, that's causing me to question, truly God is good. Maybe unburdening yourself may be the next step to see that God truly is good. God gives deliverance. God does bless us. So the psalmist was struggling deep inside, didn't share it with those around him. And so he says, but when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. He's struggling with all this, this inner turmoil, everything he sees outside of him. He's really questioning his hypothesis about God. And he's saying, you know what, this is, I can't understand it. This is so difficult for me. It's a wearisome task. I, I don't even know if I can make it through this time of struggling. I'm at that precipice. I'm about to fall. And he says, until finally something clicked. In his mind, he's like, oh yeah, you know what? <laughs> There's something I haven't done about this until this point. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. He's struggling with all this and it's like, oh, silly me. I'm a minister in the temple. I lead worship. And it just didn't occur to me in all this turmoil, all this struggle, to turn to God, to come into his tabernacle, into his sanctuary and worship. There was very much soul searching that he was going through. He was completely overwhelmed as he contemplated it. And then he approached the throne of God. God's presence in our life brings clarity. God's presence brings clarity to our life. Things changed for the psalmist here when he turned to God, not as an object of speculation, but turning to God in worship. He didn't just think about different aspects of God and his character or theology, but he fell before God in worship. He poured out his heart before God in the, in the sanctuary, worshiping God. And then it says, then I discerned their end, talking about those that he was envious of. He now saw the real fate of the wicked. 
What was tearing his faith apart? Those that he looked at that he was envious of, he now saw, I should not envy them. He says, truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. So he sees that the wicked are in slippery places. He talked about how he was ready to slip, how he was ready to fall and stumble. And he realizes my envy of them was putting me in a similar place to them. They are really on that slippery slope. They are the ones who are going to fall to ruin. He says how they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. He says the wicked are ultimately rejected by God. The wicked do not receive that manifold presence of God himself. They do not experience what Asaph experienced in verse 17 when he went into the sanctuary of God, falling before him in worship. And then God enlightened his mind and his heart. The wicked don't experience that. For you, when you come into the presence of God and worship, when we worship God in song and praise, when we worship God as we hear from His Word, when we pray together as a people, you feel that presence of God. Maybe not always, but there are times when you say, yes, that is a time when I felt God's presence most definitely in my life. The wicked don't have that. They are lacking in that. They don't feel that manifold presence of God. So instead of that envy of them and their prosperity, it should break our hearts that they are not experiencing the presence of God. The psalmist, he starts to see this reality here. And his perspective starts to change. I should not be envying them. I should be broken for them. He says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. He comes into the presence of God. He sees this enlightenment that God has given to him. And now he starts to turn inward. God, I was awful toward you. I was sinning in my attitude towards you. I was a brute beast towards you. I love that, how he says he was a brute beast. Just that image that just, I was a wild animal. I had no control. I was just in utter chaos. I lashed out like someone cornered. I was a brute beast towards you, God. He finally stopped looking at other people. And as he engaged in worship and focused on God, he then realized he needed to focus inward at the sin that was in his life. And he starts confessing his sin to God. He was convicted of his sin after being in the presence of God and worshiping him. He noticed his own peril that he was in. He said in verse 2 that he had almost stumbled. He was about to slip. So when he looked back at it, he realized he was that close to the precipice. He realized his own peril. He looked how he was betraying his own brothers and sisters in, 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 in Christ because he was not willing to share his struggles with them. Because that could have helped them along. He realized that. And he noticed that he was being sinful towards God, being that brute beast towards God. God's accusing presence in our life can turn to delight. When we are in the presence of God and he convicts us of our sin, and we turn it over to him, confessing it, repenting, 
that accusing presence that we want to shield ourselves from can become a delight to bask in his presence when we turn over ourselves to him. And the psalmist, he says at that point, confessing his sin, he says, Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. He's standing in God's presence. He realizes that God's presence is always there with him, that he is in God's presence. I am continually with you. I want to focus on the way he said that. He said, I am continually with you. A lot of times we say God is with us. And that's not a wrong thing to say, but sometimes how we say it in the context in which we say it, we might be saying it in a way that's kind of justifying where we are at in our life. We might use it as a reason not to change. Say that, well, God's with me, so therefore what I'm doing must be okay. What I'm doing is right. The psalmist here, he's saying, He's not saying God is with me, but he's saying I am continually with God. I am with him. I'm not asking God to meet me and follow me and my own, my own aspirations and do the thing that I want to do. It's no, I am going to be with God. I am going to follow him. So yes, God is with us, but because we are continually with him, we are going to God. We're not asking God to follow us. We're following Him. He's saying God holds him by his right hand. He's saying God guides him by his counsel. He's saying God will receive him as he's passing into the crowning joy of God's presence. He's receiving that manifold presence of God. And he wants God and God alone. As he says, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? He says, having God, there is nothing else that I desire. What a remarkable change that he has here. He he now sees the riches and the prosperity that the wicked have. He's like, that's not... That's not what it's all about. I want, I desire God. The wicked don't have that. Everything else is pointless. What is the purpose to our life if we don't have God? The wicked may have riches, they may have prosperity, but really they are suffering because they don't have God. They don't have that manifold presence of God himself. What a radical change from the first half of the psalm when his eyes were fixed on the wicked. What a radical result that we could have in our life when we regain and focus our gaze upon God, upon Christ our Savior. When we are standing in the presence of God, all other things become pointless. Material possessions, health, status, none of those things matter. When we're in the presence of God, it doesn't matter if we have a penny to our name. When we are in the presence of God, it doesn't matter if we are dying of a terminal illness. If When we are in the presence of God, it doesn't matter what people think of us. When we are in the presence of God, 
It doesn't matter our suffering. God is what matters. The psalmist has come to see this. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. Our health may fail. We will die. We will die. But God, He is eternal. Our health, it's not. Our riches, our prosperity, our status is not. God is eternal. It is not the riches or power that is needed, but God alone. That is what Asaph came to realize. He says that, God, you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Now, if you know anything about the Levites, as Asaph was a temple worker, he was a Levite. That term, you are my portion forever. The tribes of Israel each had an inheritance of the land. The Levites did not have an inheritance. They did not have a portion of land that was theirs. God told them in, uh, in Numbers, in the book of Numbers, he said that I am your portion. I am your portion forever. God is the inheritance of the Levites. So Asaph here, he realizes, you know what, God? It is so true. You are my inheritance. You are the strength of my heart and my portion forever came back to that conclusion and realized it. And his question that he's been answered, or questioning all along has finally been answered here. He said, those who are far from you shall perish. Life without God guarantees this end. So those that we look around that don't have Christ, they will perish. They don't have God. He sees that. And he comes to the chief and only good that he sees. He says, for me, it is good to be near God. Near and far have nothing to do with our being, uh, have nothing to do with like physical distance. But it has everything to do with our position with God. God, you could say, is everywhere or everywhere is before God, so it's not a matter of distance. But for the sinner, no matter how God has that omnipresence, for the sinner, God is distance and far from them. While us, as Christians, we can experience that manifold presence of God. It is good to be near God. It is good to experience that presence of God. And because of that, he says, you know, God, it's good to be in your presence. And because of what I've experienced in your presence, I'm going to tell of all your works. I am going to tell all the people about what you have done. And to me, that we have this psalm is testimony that Asaph took this horrible point in his life, this inner struggle that he was having, and he brought it to the children of Israel saying, hey, everyone, I've got a new song for us to sing here today in worship. Follow after me. And he goes through this psalm telling them about his struggles. How many there heard that song for the first time? And maybe they said, wow, I've been having that same struggle. I've been feeling those same things. I'm not alone in this. Maybe they came to that same conclusion. Yes, it's good to be near God. It's good to experience that presence of God. That's all that matters. Those wealth, those possessions, the status, the power, that doesn't matter. What matters is God himself. So Asaph here, he told of his struggles. He told of God's wonderful work in his life. And it had blessed those worshiping in the temple.
And it has continued to bless us. It has blessed the church for a few millennia now. So as we read God's word here in Psalm 73, we might have our own hypothesis that we are testing with God right now. We might have our own struggles. We might have different things in our life. I encourage you in those struggles that you are having. Asaph had that turning point when he says, until I entered the sanctuary of God. Come to the presence of God. Worship Him. Turn over your struggles to Him. Let God enlighten your heart and your mind. But also, in your times of struggle, look to your right, to your left, those behind you and in front of you. These are your brothers and sisters that are there to help you in those struggles. But also, you could be the one to help them. Do not deprive those around you or yourself of the blessings that you could receive or give to those that are here. Let us bow in prayer before God. God, we thank you for your word. God, we have our own inner struggles. We question sometimes, God, your very character. We sometimes become like brute beasts before you. A lot of times we keep those inner struggles buried deep within. I pray, God, that you would search each of us and know us. That you would help lift that burden. That you would help lift that burden through those that are around us and our own church and our own families our closest friends, God, that we could help those near us and that they could help us when it comes to these struggles, that we can feel that manifold presence of you and be free. We pray these things now, God, in your holy and blessed name, Jesus. Amen.